what you say. It's a hell of a price to pay for security. And when you see species tumbling down, ask yourself what's real: estate agent or gene pool? Blade poised at my mother's throat, a nuclear umbrella shields my soul. Yellow cake bob got my vote. Boxby Downs pays wage or dole to be or not to. Final choice: ecology or extinction. Raise your voice. Ever since they heard the news, sisters and brothers sing the blues. Share despair, fear and sorrow. Love on each other like there's no tomorrow or yesterday. May there be peace on earth. Ecology, ecstasy, evolution. Sap coursing through a mammal branch touches you, a trembling human leaf. Send your roots back through the tree of life, shedding false humanistic beliefs. You fall to your Some still natural place. Embrace the trees. Feel ecology. Pierce your heart. Oh yes, there's just one thing more. Extinction howls outside the door. And no matter what you say, it's a hell of a price to pay. For a walk in the forest, will you throw us all in jail? For the myth of employment, will you blaze the final trail? For a chance to use your power, will you strike the lethal spark? For a handful of timber, will you take our national park? For the sake of your empire, will you let them take our trees? And for multinational money, can they do just what they please? For the local country people, will you keep them in the dark? For a handful of timber, will you take our national park? 
for a politician's payoff. Will you cut the future down for the history books to witness? Will you be the criminal clown for the end of our forest? Will you give the word to start for a handful of timber? Will you take our national park? Save the Daintree National Park. Good afternoon and welcome to Acting Up, an hour of resistance radio that explores the movements that made us, drawing from the activist archives through to the voices of resistance today. Before we start the show, I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from stolen lands. The stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I'd like to pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. This week we're continuing our retrospective series looking at the incredible history of Friends of the Earth here in so-called Australia. And today we will talk, we'll be talking about forest campaigning throughout the years. I'm your host for today, Megan Williams, and to do the show, we will be talking to Fiona York, Martin Daly, and Anthony Amos, forest campaigners uh, that have been in the movement since the early 90s. This year at Friends of the Earth, we're celebrating 45 years of resistance. That's 45 years we've been mobilising communities, resisting the oppressive forces of patriarchy to nuclear racism, and transforming our future towards a more just world for all. I'll be taking you through the politics of the time over our 45 years of campaigning here in so-called Australia, uh, what we did and why it's still important. Today's episode, we'll be talking about forests, a big topic for environmentalists and something that we're often most well known for. As we've heard through the series, uh, FOE was founded in the anti-nukes movement in the 70s, but it wasn't until later in the game that we joined the forest movement in the 1990s. We've worked to critique plantations, break down the greenie versus logger dynamic uh, by working with unions, the earthworker experiment, and bringing in indigenous voices. And today we'll be going through, or we'll be talking again yeah, to Fiona Martin and Anthony Amos, uh, who have been involved with forest campaigns at FOE throughout the years hearing some of the big campaign wins, possible losses, and the lessons that have been learnt through it all. Um, we're just going to go to a quick community servants announcement, and we'll be back. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. 
You're listening to Acting Up. We're celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday with a retrospective series looking into our 45 years of creative resistance. My name's Megan and I'm joined by Anthony Amos, Martin Daly and Fiona York in the studio today to talk about forest action at FOE over the years. How's it all going? Yeah, really well, thanks. Good. So to set the scene, Amos, uh, can you tell us how you came to be involved in forests and give us an idea of what the movement looked like when you started? Uh, Yeah, well, uh, Marty and I were both in a group called Rainforest Action Group, so that was in the late 80s. We were um, campaigning on uh, local, sorry, on campaigning against tropical timber imports. So we had a group called Melbourne Rainforest Action Group. so we cost the industry, the Malaysian in, uh, import industry, about 100 million bucks, and we reduced the amount of timber coming in for, by about 80 percent. And we did uh, what hundreds of actions. Yeah, we were pretty busy in those days. We used to do the ship blockades on the Yarra. So there was the, the cargo ships were coming in from um, from uh, Indonesia or Malaysia actually, and uh, we, we'd paddle out in the middle of the night in winter and blockade them as a symbolic protest and, and then, you know, follow-up actions in the yards where the timber was being distributed, actions against uh, retailers and distributors, all that sort of thing. So it was a pretty active campaign, pretty busy at the time and, yeah, a lot of fun, lots, lots of arrestable uh, actions and that sort of thing. So And it was an introduction to direct action for us. So a lot of people came in, it was their first experience with direct action, um, consensus decision making um, and non-violence, you know, campaigning. Mm. So that was about from 1988 to about 1992, sort of, so there was a burst of energy, a bit like a, you know, I don't know, Roman candle or something, and just huge burst of energy, hundreds of people at meetings, hundreds of people at actions, and then it just went poof sort of evaporated. So out of the remnants of, um, of the RAG, there was some local people uh, in, that, in the group that wanted to campaign on Victorian issues as well. And from that, uh, the, the, uh, the detritus of, the, of RAG, uh, we formed the Friends of the Earth Forest Network. There was about, what was that, 92? Yeah, about 92. Yeah. Um, and our main focus was um, East Gippsland when we initially started. And so we thought we'd uh, have a group that would have a voice in the city uh, and do actions in the city to, uh, because a lot of actions had been done in the bush, but um, we thought we could get a lot of um, interest up in the city and, you know, we, and we had that group going for about 10 years. Right. Longer, that, I think. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the, with uh, the Rainforest Action Group, we were initially looking at international issues. We got interested in a rainforest issue in Victoria, and at that time, um, MRAG was meeting at FOE when FOE was at, um, on Brunswick Street in that building. And as that was sort of breaking apart, well, there was yeah, a collective working on local native forest issues, and, and we sort of initially we sort of went out on our own. But that, uh, that didn't work out all that well, and, and Cam offered us a place to meet, and so then we got into the, the Friends of the Earth fold as a collective within FOE. Fantastic. And um, Fiona, you joined... Uh, can you tell us about 
what the Forest Network looked like when you joined? Yeah, so um, we, I wasn't a part of the faux Forest Network exactly because we were um, living in East Gippsland and I think up until like the early 90s, people had gone out and done direct action in the forest but there hadn't been a base out there and it had been a summer-based action campaign to kind of highlight there. An international park had been declared but there was a bunch of logging going on in the plateau and going on in rainforest areas and so Friends of the Earth combined with a local group called Concerned Residents of East Gippsland, which was Jill Redwood's group, and the Wilderness Society held a festival um, in 93, about November, about this time actually, 93, and heaps of people showed up, and then they just didn't want to go back to the city, they wanted to stay, so the Goonga Environment Centre was formed um, in the, around November, December, and then we just stuck around, we're still going. Um, so yeah, that was the direct action connection and like Marty and Amos were saying, um, it was really great to have FOE as the sort of conduit for the direct action side of things because um, I guess there's other types of campaigning but we were really passionate about doing actual, um, you know, forest blockades, tripods, tree sits and things like that and the FOE values of, you know, worker liaison and um, query liaison and police liaison and consensus decision making influenced the way we campaigned and we were really into making sure that we weren't discounting the need, the, the issues for local people living in the area. We weren't just blow-ins coming in every summer and making trouble for local people. We were trying to build those connections um, and that was, our, that was our philosophy that came from FOE um, and that, that was why we are now we're affiliated with FOE but back then we were an independent group um, and that support from the city was just really vital. Hmm. So we had another um, concept too, like we wanted to decentralise the forest movement. Like we, like Fiona said, there was too much sort of emphasis. I mean, it's important to harness city energy, but the decisions don't necessarily or shouldn't come from the city. They should be based on people living and campaigning and, and living in those regional areas. So we very early on wanted to decentralise the forest movement and give more power to the regions. So um, we were formative with, with forming Gecko. We also were formative with forming uh, Otways Rangers Environment Network in 95. We did a lot of work with uh, the Wombat Forest Society. Uh, Tim, um, Tim Anderson and Loris Duclos back in the about 94. So uh, we were seeing a decentralised sort of um, forest movement and our little group in Melbourne, we, we'd meet every week, but we were a conduit to getting people, particularly down in East Gippsland, so if people want to get involved, we just put them in touch with Gecko and mm. they could make those links that way. So we were like the Trotskyites of the... Um, of the forest scene, I think. <laughs> and, and meeting every week too, so regularly. I remember there was always Monday night meetings and people that might be wanting to get involved could just go into FOE and find out what's going on and get involved however they wanted to because the Otways was kicking off about the same time. So. Yeah, it was, it was a good place. Like, a, a, Well, you need that in the city where people can come. It's like, it, it was a completely different environment and culture, say uh, the Wilderness Society or anything like that. It was all sort of grassroots, community-based activism and... And people, people were even getting filtered off into different types of campaigns, like you know the anti-uranium uh, mining issues and that. So there was, it was a, a really good uh, centralised spot for people to come in and get uh, an introduction to the to the activist mm. culture yeah. uh, that was sort of open. Because it was pre-internet, so you yeah. had to the way you found things out was through flyers and leaflets and actually speaking, bumping into people on the streets. <laughs> you had yeah, to have yeah. a central place to go, you know. Yes, it sounds like a um, 
has Friends of the Earth has always been that, that hub, that meeting place? Well, it was. It was always busy. It was all different campaigns and they were all intermingling together and mixing socially. So it was all an interesting uh, cultural environment. Mm, cross-pollination of, yeah. of campaigns. Yeah. Um, we're just going to go to a community service announcement and we'll continue this discussion after that. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you listen to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. You're listening to 3CR. This is Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday retrospective history series. Uh, we're here looking back at the forest movement and Friends of the Earth's role in campaigning in this space. My name's Megan and I'm joined by Fiona York, Anthony Amos and Martin Daly in the studio today. Um, we've bit just been talking about uh, the role that Faux played in um, getting volunteers and coordinating actions with um, various community groups out in the Otways and um, in the formation of Gecko in East Gippsland. Um, so we've touched on uh, how Faux kind of worked with local communities to break down um, that that greeny worker, um, you know, the conflict that is the forever conflict between the environment and the economy. Um, can you speak to a bit about how um, how we worked in that space to achieve that? Well, it started initially with um, Brendan Condon, who was a, uh, a rep in the CFMEU in, back in the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group days. So he did a lot, laid a lot of the foundations of building... Uh, uh, well, creating models to, of how to engage with the unions, and uh, and so in the early days we were getting um, unloading bans and that type of thing, and so so that 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 uh, um, created that understanding of the importance of the labour movement and how we're going to interact with them. So that so then we tried to we tried to use that technique um, with the forestry division, but that didn't. That didn't work out. They had a different sort of approach to things than what we were looking at. We were looking at sort of a different way of doing things. So that didn't work. And I'd come from, the, I'd originally been in the Australian Timber Workers Union back in the early 80s. So I was sort of familiar with the culture and what was going on. But at that point, we didn't, we didn't have, we weren't making much headway. So we, we started talking to millers, you know, uh, sawmill owners and, and, and different people and, and trying to engage and say, well, look, we, we're not totally completely opposed to all native forest logging. It's just industrial logging. So we were out there on the ground talking. But but if the sawmills were talking to us, well, they would get ostracised. There was sort of that, they had that club, the industry had that sort of clubby mentality and you, you weren't supposed to get too close to the greeny sort of thing. <laughs> and so a few of them fell over, you know, in interesting circumstances. There was one guy we knew who had a mill that was self-powered and um, he was getting degrade mills, which is, uh, degrade logs, which is the lowest grade logs and he was producing sawn timber and that was just shamed the whole industry because otherwise they were getting sent to Eden to be exported as pulp logs. So 
there was a, so yeah, we, we understood we were trying to work that angle and create a bit. We ran into a lot of dead ends and a lot of resistance, like cultural resistance mm. with inside the industry on that one. Yeah, and it was it is a cultural thing, not a not an economic thing or a logical thing. And we because we did have that philosophy of protecting old growth forests, high conservation value forests, and rainforests, and we weren't opposed to native forest logging in principle, like high value added timber. We supported the wood design exhibition in Orbost. Yeah, low volumes and making nice stuff out of Australian timber instead of exporting it for wood chips. That was something that we really tried to use when we were talking to people. But because of the nature of forest blockading, it is antagonistic and it did get quite heated. But because we stuck around for so many years, we did slowly build that respect up in the community. And things have changed. They've, they've realised now that they shouldn't have taken it all. It's all gone. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's nothing left. Yeah, there's nothing left now. So, so we, and we were making, we, uh, Loris and Tim up at Wombat, they were making good alliances with local, local timber uh, workers up there that were horrified to see their, uh, the Wombat forest getting um, hammered by, by the export woodchippers. So the export woodchippers were taking all the timber and leaving the um, Wombat forest in a very degraded uh, state. Um, so they were making good links with 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 old uh, old timber cutters up there. Millers as well. Um, so then we also had a, a bit of a connection with a radial sawer, uh, Andy Canor down in Yarram. He was he had a small mill that was uh, having a revolutionary way of sawing timber, um, and we were sort of connecting in with him. Um, but uh, you know we had all these links, but I don't think anything really solid came out of it. Um, One of the good things with uh, Tim and Loris when they worked with uh, uh, Wombat Forest Societies, they, they, they were good operators and they managed to get into the government's year mm. and they established a community uh, forest management program. And, and that was fantastic. What they would do, they'd go in with you at the local community to assess the environmental values, work out what trees you could take without compromising the ecological systems. And it was great. But even that uh, got a, had a lot of... Uh, resistance from other environment groups because they wanted no native forest longer at all. They wanted to shut down the industry and switch it uh, all over to plantation, whereas uh, Tim and, and Loris were looking at creating a sustainable, viable local timber industry. But, yeah, they ran into resistance and were undermined by some of the mainstream environment groups that, you know, just had a sort of black and white perspective on the on the issue. So that was interesting times. Tim and Loris also did <clears throat> some assessments of the sustainable yields mm. that the government was working with, which is measuring the volume of timber you can take from the forest. And they, and they found uh, that, uh, that the government was taking 30% more than it should have under its own figures. So, yeah. so the whole thing, they had it, like, a, across the state, there was a 30 reduction in the amount of timber taken so they did amazing work at that time so they were the sort of yeah that community group and working with the local community the workers um it, the whole the whole community not just you know segmented parts of it so so loris had been employed at far as a water campaigner so she was actually working on water issues and she had um a son that uh, got very ill from a waterborne illness and so she um I met her in, in the office one day. She was in a, a, a big flurry. Anyway, she'd found an illegal logging operation happening up in uh, near McRae Creek, up near um, near Yarra Junction. 
And, uh, yeah, anyway, we, that was the case. I think I've talked about this. We, we ran the, it took two years, but we ran the only case in Victoria's history where a logging company's been found guilty of anything. And that was largely through the work of Loris. And it was McRae Creek and seven towns in the Dandenongs required, um, were, required that, that small catchment for, the, f- uh, for their drinking water. So. Should explain the, the link with, uh, Roger Pescott and the Kennet government on that one. Yeah, well, that, the land was owned by a government minister. So, uh, and he's family so um yeah we took two years uh foe had to put you know a lot of money uh, well not a lot of money but we went to vcaf we would have lost the case we would have lost possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars um so put everything uh, on the line so so there was also that connection with logging and water supplies Mm. uh and and water catchments and then from the private, from that private forestry case, uh, well, I got interested then in what was happening in other private forests. So that's what got me into the Stresleckies. And, uh, we went down there on a visit. I'll never forget that. And, um, we just saw in the first hour, it was 10 times worse than what we'd seen on a legal case we'd won. And then we just saw, saw that this area was going to get hammered even worse. But the uh, the QC that was used on our case was then employed by the forest industry to shut down the loopholes that we'd gained legally. And so, yeah, we a Faux Forest Network boldly went where no group would go before we started looking at plantations in a, in a bit of a critical eye. And around that time, mid-90s, the, the federal government had just decided to treble the plantation base in Australia from to about one and a half uh, million hectares, the biggest corporate land grab ever in Australia's history. So... Not only were we looking at forest issues, old growth forests and supporting groups protecting them, but we're also looking at this whole monocultural experience and what, what, it, what actually is it to um, log somewhere sustainably. Yeah, and so what, um, you know, like to people who haven't really thought about it before, like a plantation seems like it's okay, right? There's no... You grow your trees, you cut them down, you do it again. Like, well, it's, what, it's what are the native, issues? The, the only good thing about it is it's not native forest, but you've got broad-acre monocultures, so there's the, often there's chemicals they use, you've got erosion, and then it goes to other levels. You've got social factors. So when a plantation goes in where a family farm was, mm. um, you start to lose resources out of the community. There's less kids at school, there's less allocations in uh, local uh, councils and state governments and federal governments even. So it has all these... Uh, on, uh, flowing, flow-on effects, and so there has a much, a much larger impact. I got involved in a case where uh, Macquarie Bank and Midways, who are the largest exporter of wood chips in Australia, so they uh, they wanted to establish a new area in in Gippsland um, where they're going to start this process of converting farms into plantations. And what it would have meant for us was, you know, log trucks, helicopters flying, uh, spraying herbicides and pesticides and who knows what, and a breakdown in the local community. But unfortunately, there was just when there was this government scheme was called the Managed Investment Scheme, it broke, it collapsed. It was a Ponzi scheme. The, 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 uh, like Macquarie Bank and Midway would buy land for $1,000 a hectare. They would sell it to investors for $9,000 a hectare on the assumption that they were going to double or triple their money at the end of the life cycle of the plantation. But it all collapsed because it, it was all built on lies. So that, that whole thing. So, and it created havoc across the country. You know, it bankrupted, you know, people who poured their life savings thinking they were create, you know, investing in the alternative to 
Native Forest logging, and yeah, it was just a complete debacle. Mm. So we had this Sounds situation like where the, the old growth was still going down in East Gippsland, but we also had these other dynamics that were at play, like the plantation expansion. At the same time, Victoria's plantations then got privatised and sold off to an American insurance company. So that diverted a lot of our attention away from old growth into these other areas, water supplies, uh, pesticides, um, on and on and on we go. So, um, But it was good having gecko down because they could organise the stuff in East Gippsland and um, you know the stuff like, I mean, maybe Fiona wants to talk about uh, yeah, some, was, some of the big issues down there. It's good having people on the ground who could do it. You could, like, that, that, you, having that autonomous role, mm. you just, well, all right, we'll, do what we yeah, want us. just keep yeah. going. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, so around, I guess, it went, like, 97, I think, was when Goulong Blockade started. And that was, um, that was just a road in the middle of nowhere. When we first looked at the map, we were like, this looks like a lush spot, but it's so bloody far away. Is this going to be feasible? But as soon as we went out there, we were like, nah, this is, we've got to do this. And so we set up a blockade that ended up becoming Australia's longest running forest blockade. It went for five years. Um, and they logged the heart out of it on World Environment Day in 1997. I remember you guys did that Marie Tian action in the, in the, <laughs> in Melbourne in solidarity with us around that time because we had about 300 people arrested over about three months. Um, and it was just endless. Everybody who had ever been out there in that first six-month period basically quit their jobs, dropped whatever they were doing, and headed straight out to Goolungal in winter. So they tried this experiment of logging old-growth forest in wintertime, which was crazy. We had um, Bob Brown got arrested. We had the, per- the woman, the first Australian woman to have ever have climbed Mount Everest, went from Mount Everest to Goolungook and went up a tree, and we had... Um, <laughs> We had Sky TV or whoever it was, Good Morning Australia, doing a live cross to her um, at the time, which was pretty funny. And it was also the same time as there was um, there was a court case going on in Morwell. So the media was going to Morwell and then coming out to East Gippsland and then going back. So it just went for months and months and months. And unfortunately, we lost a big chunk of that, but they ended up finding that it was illegal logging because of the Heritage River that went through it. Um, and that was a that was a good precedent um, to be set. And then over the next five years, we just kept campaigning on it. Um, they started logging it again around 2002, and it was about the same time as the sustainable yield came out. And they realised that they'd been over logging, and so kind of like to match, you know, to get more timber and to sort of throw a bone to the industry who were freaking out. They went in and busted Goolungook and logged four logging coops simultaneously. And then after that, they decided it had a spiritual importance for the people of Victoria and they protected what was left. Mm. And yeah. how much of it was left at that stage? It's about 2,000 hectares, I think. There was quite a bit left. It's still there. You can't really get into it anymore because we tried to have a reunion there about 10 years afterwards to sort of celebrate the fact that we'd won this big chunk of forest and um, the loggers took out all the bridges so we couldn't get in there. Um, <laughs> we, we still had a party. On, yeah, we still had a party on the other side of the bridge, though. Um, but it did mean that that's actually untouched now. It's growing back. Even the region has, you know, whatever is left, the roads are starting to be grown over and it's going back to the way it was. Um, and there's a lot of really beautiful lush rainforest in there still, old growth forest, yeah. Yeah, amazing. So yeah. an iconic bit of forest. It was sort of the centrepiece of the, for the whole sort of uh, campaign. Yeah, yeah. The other key thing, I mean, uh, back in 94, we were in the East Gippsland Forest Alliance, so um, we did a blockade of the Department of Sustainability and Environment just here in Victoria Project, just around the corner from 3CR. 
and that's when the cops use uh, uh, the pressure hold grips where mm. they um, sort of pick you up off the ground um, and grab you by the artery that connects the brain to the heart and you know there was like torture I mean mm. it was torture and anyway that action actually um, we had every news news channel there we had all the newspapers it made front page uh, front page of the Herald Sun I couldn't believe it went down to the news agents after the action front page that image won the Walkley Award for the uh, for the best photo of 1994 and it also won uh, one of the images of the century in the last edition of the Herald Sun you've got issues of the atomic bomb you know and you've got the Hindenburg and all this sort of stuff and then right at the bottom is this is the pressure hold action so it, it was aired in China and it, you know this is the way they deal with protesters in Australia mm, so, by the so neck and that was 94 but also what we were doing around that time we were doing a series we did a lot of uh, wood chip actions down at Midways down in, mm. in Geelong so we get a lot of crew that I think we formed a little group down in Geelong what was their name Flack or something what, um, um, uh, oh. Okay, yeah, it was a yeah, long time yeah, ago, was. but uh, yeah, we were doing an we and our actions for Forest Network peaked about '96. I think we did about I think we counted about 60 actions in the city that year. That's more than one a week, and then it sort of went. We couldn't sustain it much longer, so um, then our numbers started to drop. At our what peak, was the count about I think we did 400 direct actions. You know, things like we'd go into the, the export mill at uh, wood chip export mill at um, Geelong and stuff like that, and just do walk-ins and lock-ons and mm. and and occupations and that. So and that that was sort of like every couple of months at least, and other actions with going into coops, which led to the formation of the Always Range Environment Network. We were doing the Always. We were all over the place. You know, anywhere there was. That was an issue. We would be doing direct actions. I think it was over 400. Was it 400? Over 400 actions? It was a lot. Just so, yeah, we're busy. We're very busy. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. Well, um, on that, we might go to a quick break, a couple of community service announcements. You're listening to Acting Up on 3CR. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever. There are chemical corporations around the world. They're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11 a.m. Sunday and 6.30 a.m. Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855 a.m. or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. You're listening to 45 Years of Creative Resistance, a retrospective history series about Friends of the Earth uh, on the Acting Up program. And uh, today we're talking about the history of the forest movement in Victoria uh, with long-term forest campaigners Anthony Amos, Martin Daly and Fiona York. Uh, So we've been talking about uh, the blockade out in Goolongok and how the phone network worked with with unions to um, break down that greeny logger divide. Um, But I want to shift the conversation a bit um, and have a more general discussion about, like, over the the years, who have our targets been, who have been the key targets, what tactics did we use to get to them, and what were some of the incremental wins over those years? Um, Fiona, Mm. do you want to share? Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's always a debate about what the best target is. Um, I suppose we've targeted government in terms of policy decision. There's always a flurry around the election around trying to get some forest promises while they're, you know, in the campaign mode. And we did a bunch, well, Foe and Gecko did a bunch of stuff at the last um, federal and state election just recently, which was awesome to mobilise a bunch of people that hadn't done it before and letterboxed all the marginals. And that was really cool to see. Um, I guess we also have targeted industry um, with consumer boycotts, which apparently aren't allowed anymore. Um, and other, you know, different, I guess, you guys did a bunch of work with the mills too. But, yeah, I think what I've realised over the years is that it doesn't, no, there's no one right answer and we've got to try them all. So the best thing, I reckon, is just everyone try everything um, and see what happens, see what sticks. <laughs> I mean, I guess one of the really powerful things that we've done recently is citizen science campaigning, which is focusing on regulation. Um, and that's so there's a code of forest practice that the loggers are supposed to in the Tim and Vic Forest, which is a government owned um, timber company, basically. Um, and they're supposed to do certain things when they log um, prescriptions. A lot of those things aren't done. Um, and we've had wins through going out to the forest and surveying what's been done and working out what what's wrong and then. Um, putting reports in and then taking those to court. So working with Environmental Justice Australia um, and before that, Lawyers for Forests around just making sure the regulations are being followed. So we've had wins in protecting greater glider habitat, um, rainforest. We had we found some people were out surveying and they found this massive big Erinundra shining gum 
Um, and as a result of finding that, we measured it. it was one of the biggest trees in Australia. It was absolutely gigantic. Um, and we got a prescription that protected big trees as a result of that. We got a um, rainforest boardwalk into that area as a result of that, so putting in more infrastructure into the parks and also protecting the forest around it, which was mixed forest. So it was a, it's that overlap between eucalypt and rainforest, which is actually a really rare forest type of its, on its own. So all of those things combined, just basically by citizen scientists going there, looking at it, measuring it, writing reports, being really aware of what the prescriptions are, being really aware of what's supposed to be getting done and being able to recognise that, look, this is a rainforest buffer and someone's put a bulldozer through it, what's going on there? Um, and half of Goolungook was saved because they were supposed to put a 100 metre buffer on the river. I mean, a 200 metre buffer on there and put a 100 metre because they weren't aware of their own regulations and their own heritage river laws. So without citizen scientists actually going out there, um, and so we've been running camps for a few years now where we teach people how to use GPSs and read maps and all of that stuff, and it's been really, really effective. Um, and we've had most of our wins recently because of them, yeah. Yeah, I've been uh, really impressed with the way Gecko's taken up that uh, the, the, the new technology and been able to apply it, and, and also uh, the ability to challenge the department on yeah. their own terms and be able to catch them out on their own terms because they've been incompetent and um, and not and Big Forest haven't been entirely honest all the time yeah. either. So it's, and it's, it's, been it's the same as the cops investigating the cops. Yeah, like they're yeah. not doing it. Yeah, 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 <laughs> You've hopefully. got to have citizens in there to actually do it and, and fight for it. But the technology is a big difference. And that's enabled us to be able to do really good digital overlays, use Google Maps. I the mean, internet. Yeah, yeah, the, the internet. internet. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah. A, yeah, it's, it's an, an amazing thing. Tool, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It sure so is. But that yeah, kind yeah. of takes us back to, uh, you know, like back to the 90s. Mm. What did you do before the internet? How did you get people involved? And oh, how did machines. you. <laughs> it, 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 we sort of just drew on the uh, DIY, the, like the punk ethic. You know, you just had to improvise and do whatever you could. There was sort of some, there was some templates and that, but you just had to improvise and, and you know, whatever works. So, yeah, it was like, you know, band nights and that just to pay the rent at foe and all that sort mm. of thing. Phone trees. Phone yeah. tree. Remember yeah, the phone, phone tree. tree? What's a phone tree? A phone tree. Well, you have an event and you'd say, if you want to be contacted for an action, put your phone number down. In those days it was landline, you know, and so they'd write that. And if you're having action, you'd, someone would sit down, everyone would have five numbers to call and say, give them the details, and mm. that was how you would organise an action. So we were doing, soon, like back in the rag days, we were, uh, we, when we would get the information when the ship was coming in, and we would know what time to be there for our uh, blockade. We all, the, the phone calls would go out, and we'd all converge. You know, 100 or however many of us, you know, in mm-hmm. the middle of the night and winter, just converge on the hour, and that was how it operated in those days. So it was pretty, it was pretty tricky, really. Looking, looking back now, it's amazing, you know, with isn't Facebook it? and all the stuff you got now is crazy. Well, Gecko and Fo, because there was a there was a couple of people that lived up in the hills in Melbourne that were really passionate about the internet before anyone knew about the internet. Um, yeah, they had a company yeah. called GreenNet, yeah. and they used to go around to the forest meetings and the forest network meetings and say, guys, there's this thing. It's going to really make your organising much easier. <laughs> and they set up the first... No one believed fo- Yeah, well, people were sceptical. <laughs> but they champions. really were passionate champions and they taught people how to use HTML and how to build websites. Yeah. And they built Gecko's website. They built Fo's first website. It was really early days. and Is they that bought the same website Laurie. we've got now? Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the, we only just updated ours. You can see the old one. It's still there, archived. It's pretty cool. Well, I got um, Hancock Watch. This, uh, we decided we did a monitoring thing in the Streslecky. So um, one of Green Network, uh, Laurie's son, 16 years old, designed the Hancock watch 
uh, main page, which has never been changed, in tw- and the site's still up now. That was one of the first kind of markets kind of campaigns, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so what we did, we we knew then. Well, well, to take a photo in the bush of coops, but it used to stay in your bottom drawer, you know. But this way, you get the photos up on the web and embarrass. So, what happened in the Streslek is was the area got bought out by a particular insurance company. We set up this website, Hancock Watch. And then every month or two, uh, I'd travel down there and with Susie Zent from another group down there, Friends of Gippsland Bush, we'd document what was going on in the coops and um, embarrass the company. I mean, the company ended up calling it, um, they used to call it the hate site. And, um, <laughs> you know, and within within that first campaign, within I think it was set up in about 2000 and, uh, and the headquarters in Boston knew about it basically as soon as it was set up and it was a major embarrassment and I still, if I get inspired I'll go down for a day and update you know, um, a page of updates there and there's a whole there's a 20 year history of what we were documenting and without that internet sort of technology we wouldn't have got anywhere in the Streslekis really at all but what kind of, Can you give us an example of the sorts of things you'd be documenting? Oh, for us it would be um, any, any native forest, any old growth tree that was chopped down. Uh, we focused a lot on rainforest buffers, so we'd go down there and um, we were lobbying for 250 metre buffers on cool temperate rainforest. So we'd go into areas that have been logged and with measuring tapes and we, we'd measure the edge of the rainforest to where they'd cut and it would be 20 metres or 30 metres and because it's private land down there it's the um, code of forest practice is a lot weaker. And there's, there's things like they're supposed to be buffers on rivers and streams and that but they'd be pushing logs and mud into you know streams that were going to be someone's uh, in someone's catchment further downstream so yeah it's just crazy industrial logging. The stuff that came out of the streams like is was just insane you know for people had been seeing what had happened in Native Forest to see how they operated in private land was just so, so we set up another site after that called Australian Paper Watch so out of the corporate targets we mainly had in the 90s uh, were Midway which is the big um, which is the wood chip uh, mill in Geelong ironically owned by a guy called Tory Gunnison who was also the biggest rainforest timber importer into the, into the country so we did a heap of campaigning on them. Uh, Amcor, who owned who owned the uh, paper mill at Maryvale, now it's Dosher, isn't it? I think. Nippon paper. Yeah. Uh, we did a lot of stuff on them, and um, then I got mainly involved with Hancock. So the um, you know the, the American multinational that bought out all of our plantations around the state. Um, so um, they were our main co- and Dosher at, at Eden. They were our main four. Uh, campaigns. We actually did an, an action at Ozpine. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. So Ozpine were at, were a um, a pine plantation company. So we just, but they're also a side business of theirs was importation of merbu and um, and they'd bring uh, you know jarra and stuff over from WA. So they were marketing themselves as a great green plantation well, company. They were getting support from but groups like the Wildos. They, they were saying, you know, this is the way the plantations come in. We went to the yard and we found tropical rainforest timbers, old growth forest, you name it. And so one, one hand they're getting slapped on the back and then we get on to discover what they're really about. And then, and then, and then out of that was we realised that the, a lot of the treated pine uh, was treated with copper and arsenic. It was toxic. 
And so we got uh, restrictions placed on uh, the sale of CCA timber back in 2003-2004. That, that, that was a faux uh, initiative as well. So um, you know, kids would play on these, on these decks that have been with this timber that have been treated with arsenic. Hand goes to mouth, they mm. start ingesting arsenic. Mm. So that was, it was a huge health scare at the time. It? It was, yeah, it was the, the easiest campaign I'd ever worked. I mean, it, it, <laughs> They, yeah. they, so what kind of tactics did you use to draw attention to that? Well, just media. Well, that mainly. one was lobbying, wasn't it? Mainly, it was. It was. Yeah, it was just putting out information. That one, I think. Just yeah, we're getting the media, showing them the, the reports. You would have been sending out a lot of media releases and that sort of thing. Yeah, I had, the, I had the head the of the APVMA come down and meet me in a coffee shop opposite Foe to discuss it. And then, you know, two months later, there were all, all these restrictions placed on it. So uh, it hasn't banned it because you can still see it everywhere, but. So there's all that. So, I mean, there was heaps of stuff going on. And then what, by about 2005, we'd, we'd run our course. Burnout. Burn yeah, out. it happens. I kept doing Streslecky stuff, but the Forest Network sort of sort of petered out. Uh, Oren, the Otways Group, had a huge win. They won about 100,000 hectares of forest. Um, so, so they sorted their, their issue out. Um, Central Highlands, we never really worked much there for, for some reason. Um, we did the occasional trip, but it wasn't until um, about 2004 that the locals up there started doing a lot more work uh, on the Central Highlands. I mean, we had our hands full. We did, we did we mention uh, the campaigning we did with Arnie Birdie down at Cobolony. That was interesting days down at uh, Lake Condor. We had some interesting times down there, we were sort of working with an elder. Gondishvara uh, held her and she, she decided she was going to go back on the land and she set up a camp at the mission there and, and she said, right, well, she called all the mates in, all the greenies from Melbourne had to come down, we had, we're doing actions, blockading, walk-ins on coops and that, and operational coops and that. And that, so yeah, that was part of that sort of, uh, networking with Indigenous people and, the, you know, meeting the communities and, and getting an understanding. Mm. So the Kabobany Forest, which is Arnie Betty's, um, she, she was a senior custodian basically. She, that's all National Park now. And if you look at, if you go online and have a look at Kabobany National Park, you get a quote from Arnie Sandra and Arnie Betty at the, at, 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 at the top of it. So we were supporting them, um, yeah, 98, 2000. Um, I remember we had a series of actions down there and um, there was one action um, where there was a series of fires lit. Yeah. <laughs> the bulldozer driver got bailed up by a fellow with a spear. Yeah, yeah, call, yeah it, was, it was intense. Traditional <laughs> law on him. <laughs> he brought out the traditional law. But they won a national leave. park out of it, you know. I, I mean, it wasn't just then. Uh, uh, the bulk of a lot of the work was the port, was the, was the Portland field nats. But only Betty and Sandra put put the icing on the cake onto um, onto that and made it just sort of politically uh, unpalatable for the, for the government to uh, to keep logging the area. So they already had a huge plantation base down there. Portland's mm. one of the largest export ports, you know, in the country for wood chips and that because it's the southeast triangle and but it's it's all it's pine and blue gum so they've got all these massive monocultures down there if you know but that area in western Victoria and southeast South Australia is just massive areas of plantation, wholly industrialised landscape. Mm. Now the, the remnant forest was very little of it left so it wasn't as hard to sort of get it uh, protected. Yeah. yeah and just on that um, you know we've kind of touched on the support that um, Friends of the Earth gave to Arnie Betty and Arnie Sandra. Um, kind of, were there any other, um, 
Yeah, how else have traditional owners been involved in forest campaigns, you know, through the Otways and in Gecko and... Well, I don't know. We, we started, when we started, like, with the Rainforest Action Group, one of the first people we started down with was, was Robbie Thorpe. And, mm. um, and one of the actions that we did was uh, we did the Earth Police and uh, we went down and we, and we, evicted the, the, uh, we evicted the Malaysian consulate for crimes against humanity. And that was back in about 989 or something like that. So that was, so that was the, we, we ended up straight in at the sharp edge when, when you go and something like that. And that was just the culture we took on from there. And so there was, you know, different groups we'd work with. There was, um, you know, the, the, you'd work with different mob down yeah. in the Far East. Well, Robbie was really instrumental then too because he was doing no jurisdiction cases. Yeah, so we right. were getting arrested in the forest for forest blockading, getting a passport from Robbie and then going to court and saying no jurisdiction and trying to run those cases as well. They didn't go so well. But, you know, it was it was definitely trying to work with a Bitterwell mob out there. That, um, Robbie was instrumental in helping us find those people working with Lake Tyres Mission um, and also the issue that we had in the beginning was that Muji, which was the main kind of indigenous group, which is health centre in Orbos now, uh, a lot of those people were employed in the timber industry. Um, and so there was this hostility. So we, we did find families that were prepared to kind of come to blockades. And there's, there was 2002, we had a, um, a Bitterwell family come and actually blockade with us which was awesome but it was it was a long long process and it's ongoing um they were fighting their own battles with the gas pipeline that was going through the now now gorge at the time and mm. there was a whole bunch of stuff happening that we were supportive of you know in solidarity with those campaigns and also trying to make sure we've got as many kind of good solid connections as possible so we always came from the perspective of needing to um, make sure that the indigenous voices were centered um, it just took us a long time to build those relationships, but over 25 years that starts to happen. Mm. Yeah, and, and Uncle Larry Walsh did it. it was yeah, really right. helpful for us in, in navigating. You know how we had to do things. You know who we had to go and talk to, and you know when we did have those issues, it was it was sort of like a mentor for us and it sort of guide us through our relationships and and what culture we needed to understand at the time. And a couple of the conferences we did the big national forest conference in '94 and uh, um, opened up some doors with the Yorta Yorta people. As we discussed here a couple of weeks ago, and then 97, 98, we had the Indigenous Solidarity Conferences. Mm. So that helped build some trust there with Yorta Yorta, and eventually there was a big national park that came out of that. But, but we helped sort of establish that, those sort of tentative relationships early on, I think. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, our forest reserve in, in Streslek is, is, is the Batangalang Forest Reserve now, so um, that's named after uh, one, one of the tribes of the Gunai Nation. So that uh, that name was uh, supported by the elders and council down there, um, so that was something that's that sort of all 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 come out of out of that work. Mm. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, it's just gone three fifty three. We've got about five minutes left of the show, and just to close it up, I wanted to fast forward uh, to last week, just last week, um, when we saw the Victorian government make a massive announcement to end logging 90,000 hectares of old growth forests, 96,000 of new protected areas, uh, 48,500 of which are in East Gippsland. Um, yeah, maybe we'll just have a bit of a roundtable on, because I know it was, it's, not a perfect, um, it's not a perfect outcome 
But yeah, just get some thoughts. Well, we, just, we just spoke about it, but just to, you know, before, and we just said, well, you know, yeah, what's the go? So, well, from my, my perspective, you take it, you know, don't when you know, don't look at give to us in the mouse. And if there's any problems later, work on them later. Mm. But I, th- I thought I was really impressed. I thought, great, this is a start. This is this is the message to industry that the old model's not going to work anymore. Things going to change, and and great areas, you know, huge areas, tracks of land are going to be protected. That's great. So I just mm-hmm. say, well, take that. Don't get too cynical. Worry about the detail later. Work through the detail later. If it means to go back to direct action or whatever, then do that. But at least then you can talk to them and negotiate. But mm. take what's there, right? my yeah. thought. Yeah, we, we're really stoked to have Clark protected and a bunch of other areas that we've been proposing with the Emerald Link kind of concept, which is changing, you know, bringing infrastructure into East Gippsland through tourism and building that kind of stuff. So we're, we're really happy to have those areas protected. The old growth forest announcement, I never thought I'd live to see the day, um, and we were all really excited when we heard it. Obviously, the devil's in the detail with mm. what exactly is in there and is there going to be areas of old growth outside protection. But in terms of um, we think a fair bit of it should be good, should be safe. The Greater Glider um, action statement's pretty weak, um, but an end to native forest logging in 2030, everyone knows that's not fast enough, but, and it's probably more to do with their licences than actually um, wanting to protect anything. But it's a start. It means there's not going to be any new investment. It means there's an end game in sight. Um, and good, like, bring it on, let's see what happens. It signals investment in the alternative, it says, yeah. and, and so they'll be on our side too. The people who are going to be providing alternative resources will be on side. And there's got to be a proper just transition. There's got people, there, there's no long-term jobs in this industry, so support people to get out now, right now. So the only downer is that the pulp mill at Maryvale is still going to be taking, they've got a, um, a wood pulp agreement, so under that agreement, 350,000 cubic metres a year of native forest timber till 2030 so that's probably why they mentioned the 2030 cut off Um, and I've worked out it's probably going to be double that because the plantations in that area are failing the hardwood so they haven't got that hardwood resource to move into Mm. Um, so that's a bit of the the downer but I mean my other hunch is I'm thinking Maryvale might close by 2030 that's what I'm thinking because I can't imagine they'll get an industry up down there based on plantations that's going to survive so I've just got a feel, uh, feeling that mill uh, won't be around much longer. But I think, yeah, that t- take what you can because the opportunity won't be there again, maybe. And celebrate the wins when you get them. Yeah. yeah. Burnout prevention. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. We have to all take it um, and keep working until um, we protect everything that's left. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you all in the studio and have this conversation. Um, tune in next week for the episode. We will be talking about foes' involvement campaigning against roads and big developments that have threatened our urban environment. Of course, if you missed the start of the episode or want to share it with your friends, it's streaming now on 3cr.org.au forward slash acting up. Uh, and you can also find links to listen to the whole series uh, from episode one, starting with Andy Nukes. Uh, so jump online and check that out. Uh, if you've been involved in a campaign at Friends of the Earth and want to get involved in this series, contact Vo, get in touch via our Facebook page or give us a call because, yeah, we're about halfway through the series now and we would love as many of the voices from... You know, the 70s, 80s, 90s and today. Um, 
on this series. So, yeah, reach out if you've got an idea for a show. Um, and to take us out, we're going to listen to John Trudell, who was a pick from Anthony Amos. Did you want to speak to uh, this at all? Uh, this song came out about the time Forest Network was forming. I just thought it is, it, there's some good lines in there. And, um, yeah, John passed away a couple of years ago, and he's been an inspiration of a few of us for... Um, quite a while, Native American activist, uh, poet, musician, and, um, yeah, f- uh, full-on, really full-on dude. Yeah. All right, thanks very much. Stay tuned for Jan's Tuesday Home Time, and we'll see you next week. Graffiti Land. All the rides are in your head. The ticket is what is thought and what is said. Our attitudes are climbing. We don't have time for more mind-wasting lies. Whatever it is you're doing, we're not going to buy it. It's time to say something, not a time to be quiet. Speak from the spirit. Say it loud so everyone can hear it. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Rant and roll when you feel that way. Religions of men heavy with fear. Industrial war against the land. Every woman knows the fugitive. Rich men keep living off the poor. Soul is what's left after they eat your spirit. When every act is an act of self-defense, it's time to do something or perish in the pretense. Rant and roll, heart speak from the spirit. Say it loud so everyone can hear it. Say what you mean, mean what you say.